we are wrestling with racism, slavery, treason over slavery in the past, the church's involvement in it, Christianity's involvement in it. What needs to come out of this foment? What needs to come out of this moment? If we really believe, you know, if, if Baptists as Christians, if others as Christians truly believe that all humans are created in the image of God. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Bruce Gorley. He's the managing editor and publishing and experiences coordinator for Good Faith Media. It's a new media organization that just launched July 1, and Bruce is going to introduce that at the beginning of our conversation. But mostly I'm talking with Bruce because he's a historian who has written multiple books about Baptist and the Civil War. And so some of the issues that he has studied have been really important topics in our society right now as we're thinking and talking about the Confederacy, about slavery, about racism. And so Bruce is going to help us think about some of these issues with both that past and present understanding. So I was really excited to have this conversation and this chance to talk to Bruce recently. And I hope that you'll find it interesting as well as quite informative about some of our own past that we don't often like to talk about. So here's my interview with Bruce Gorley of Good Faith Media. All right, well, Bruce, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Well, before we start talking about the Civil War and Baptists and slavery, I want to first introduce you. And I know that in some ways your role is a little bit of transition. You have been with Nurturing Faith, which is merging with Ethics Daily to become Good Faith Media. And so I wonder if you could introduce us to who is Good Faith Media and what your role is going to be in this new media venture. Certainly. As of July the 1st, Good Faith Media will form from the combination of Ethics Daily and Nurturing Faith. Mitch Randall from Ethics Daily will be the CEO, and John Pierce from Nurturing Faith will be the executive publisher. And Autumn Lockett, who is also with Ethics Daily right now, will be the executive director of development and marketing. So it's a, it's a company forming from these two organizations currently in existence. And Good Faith Media will, will exist at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens and with ecumenical and interfaith partnerships also, and will provide reliable information and timely resources to people of faith who desire to pursue justice and advance the common good. We'll have a website. It's goodfaithmedia.org. There'll also be a robust social media presence across n- numerous platforms. 
We will produce news and opinion online. We'll provide curriculum for congregations. We'll publish, continue publishing in this case, the Nurturing Faith Journal, and publish books continuing that under the Nurturing Faith imprint. We'll also produce videos and podcasts. And we'll be based throughout, that is the staff will be based throughout the United States, from here in Bozeman, Montana, where I live, to Norman, Oklahoma, and Austin, Texas, and Nashville, Tennessee, and Gainesville, Georgia, and Macon, Georgia. So we've got the east, west, and south, southwest covered. I will be the managing editor of the journal and of the books division, and will also be director of Good Faith Experiences, which are small group, destination, personalized experiences to what I sometimes refer to as bucket list places, places that people really want to go at some point in their lives. Destinations nationally and internationally, both. And our experiences are led by experts here in the West. My, I live near Yellowstone National Park, for example, in Grand Teton and Glacier National Parks. We'll be led by experts under a matrix of inspirational natural settings, insider knowledge. We have authentic conversations on the hiking trails and riding around, and wonderful relationships develop. So that, that's the summary. It's, it's, a, it's a unique ministry, if you will, that has, we have, there's a lot of interest in this. We've done it for years with Nurturing Faith. We have a lot of alumni at this point. And so, and lastly, I would just reiterate for more information, go to goodfaithmedia.org. Well, yeah, I know this is the experiences, and you, you mentioned the fact that you live there in Montana and near Yellowstone, which is, of course, a, a beautiful, and, you know, I'm definitely a little bit jealous of your backyard, essentially, with that. And so I wonder if you could tell us, maybe just that, I know you'll, you'll have other, other experiences on the trip, but maybe just a, a little bit about what that experience is like because I know you have done these before where you've brought people up to the Yellowstone and Grand Tetons area. That's right. So I have been um, roaming around Yellowstone since the mid eighties actually, and I uh, know it quite well. In this case, speaking of Yellowstone, I own a website, yellowstone.net, which is a popular place for people to go and plan their vacations. So I'm kind of an insider. I anyone can come to Yellowstone. It's our park. It's a national park. We own a public land, but not everyone knows it to the depth that I, I do. And so folks flying to Bozeman here where, where I live and we all go to, we limit the group to 18 in size at tops. We make it small. I customize each time we do this, I customize it based on who, who we have. It's not exact, never exactly the same twice. We lodge in the park or near the park, sometimes on a ranch, combination of both. And we, we do some of the, Normal, if you will, tourist destinations. I provide more background information, history, and so forth. As a part of that, I take folks to out of the way places that not many people go to away from the crowds. I've had several folks tell me they've been to Yellowstone before. One had been a number of times and said she never experienced it the way she did when she came with us on this, on our experience. We eat together, we stay in iconic lodges. In national parks, such as the Old Faithful Inn, which everyone has heard of, most likely, and so you experience uh, you experience history, you experience nature, 
in the backcountry. You experience just the just the amazing features that many of these national parks. Of course, Yellowstone has geysers and hot pools and hot springs and so forth, and a lot of wildlife. It's it's casual. The conversations are not forced in an environment like this. Brian, I think one way to put it as there's something about getting away from our daily routines and coming to some special place with a group of people either you're already friends with or that you do become friends with, setting aside the daily routines of our lives and worries and so forth and absorbing ourselves in nature, in, in a beautiful place like Yellowstone, for example. And, and it, 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 helps, it helps open us open up our senses, I think. It's inspirational. I think it's spiritual. Being out in the backcountry in Montana and other places, there's a connection there. It generates really interesting conversations, and we don't put limits on what we talk about. And, fr- and lasting friendships are formed. Well, we are, I want to switch gears to what I really wanted to talk to you about, because I know we are in an, an interesting moment, and you are a historian who has has studied quite a bit about civil war and particularly Baptist and some of the arguments that were being made before and during the civil war by Baptist. And we are in this moment now where these civil war personalities, their legacies are being reconsidered in our country. They're being toppled literally, as we've seen monuments that have been defaced, that have been destroyed by protesters, that have been removed by officials in several states over the last couple of weeks. And so before we kind of back up into the past, I'm curious what your thoughts are in this present moment as you're watching the news and seeing what's happening with some of these figures that you have spent time studying and thinking about. The present moment. It is quite the moment. I believe that America has has now arrived at a heightened moment in finally facing some really difficult historical truths. These difficult truths have to do with the four centuries of racist history that's a part of American life that has been in the past expressed in the form of white people enslaving black people, and from then to the present in the form of stark racism that persists even to this day, really, despite the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And so that's one aspect. Secondly, I think these difficult truths have to do with treason against our nation, which I know is a strong statement. The United States Constitution established the federal government it was as a government of the people, of individuals, not of states, to, to which the states were legally bound. So during the American, American Civil War, which, by the way, in the South was frequently referred to as the war between the slave-holding states and the non-slave-holding states, if you can imagine that long title. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. but <laughs> It does not. And it came about as 11 Southern slave-holding states erroneously claimed the right to secede from the United States and form their own nation. And so, in reality, those 11 states committed treason against the United States. And it was, it was, that was commonly written about in northern newspapers. You, we have records. You can go to chroniclingamerica.gov and read historical newspapers from throughout the United States. Newspapers around the North, especially, frequently referred to the treason of the southern states during this time. But we don't talk about that much today, really. 
in our modern times. So I think it's really a combination of two things. It's a combination of our, of our racist uh, history, including slavery, and still, and, and the treason that happened when the southern, those 11 southern states went to war against the United States. So what I hear you saying is that the Civil War was about slavery. Well, I know that may come as a surprise, Brian. <laughs> um, to some folks in America, it, it would be a surprise. It was about slavery, and in that day and time, you can uh, you, you read the doc, just read the documents. As a historian, we go to primary documents, read the documents. It was common knowledge; it was commonly understood, north and south, both that this, the civil war or that war between the non-slaveholding states and the slaveholding states was about slavery. Now, over time, something changed because so many people today no longer believe that. And after the war lost, after the, after the South, I should say, lost the war, and, and really started near the end of the war before it was even over with, and the South realized they would lose, they began revising history. And so it became uh, a myth arose called the, the lost cause myth. And it basically stated that the South had a righteous cause and the war was not really about slavery, but about states' rights. Now, the reality is, in history, state the phrase states' rights has been bantered around for different reasons. In, in the, for example, in the 1850s before the war, the North claimed states' rights in refusing to return escaped slaves to the South. The South did not like that. White Southerners did not like that. Slave owners, obviously. But then the South thought it was just fine, for example, to claim states' rights on their own in, in starting the war against the North. So states' rights, all that is to say, states' rights is a tool. It has been a tool historically. It remains a tool to this present day. Sometimes we see that phrase batted around, if you will. It was about slavery. Everyone knew that back then. Unfortunately, not everyone seems to remember that today. Yeah, and so this was also true then for Baptist. So, and I know this is an area that you have particularly have looked at. You're, you're, you've authored several books, and one of the more recent ones, Crucible of Faith and Freedom, subtitles Baptist and the American Civil War, where you look at what Baptists were actually saying. And so I wonder if you can kind of give us some some teasers of some of the things, some of the trends that you noted, and then people that are interested can check out the book and dig into this topic a lot deeper. Uh, certainly. Um, Baptists represent a pretty good, I think, microcosm of the South and the North, both during the Civil War era. There were numerous in both North and South. Baptists of the day and time tended to be lower socioeconomic scale, although that was already changing. A bit of a, an interesting twist to all of this background is that prior to 1800, many white Baptists of the South were not uh, actually pro-slavery. Many were either ambivalent or even anti-slavery, but at that point, they really were low on the socioeconomic totem pole, if you will, and so they didn't have the means to own slaves. Around 1820, that, that changed with Denmark Vesey Rebellion in South Carolina. And Baptists of South Carolina, white Baptists, defended the governor's 
cracked down and local officials cracked down on slavery at that time. Can we pause right there, Bruce, and and maybe maybe mention a little bit about Denmark Vesey? Okay. You know, it, I'll be honest, it's not one that I knew about until fairly recently, and so I think that might be an important moment to explain what what who Denmark Vesey was and and what his rebellion was. Denmark Vesey in 1822 in Charleston, South Carolina, was a well-educated African American for his for his day, and he instigated, he plotted, I should say, a slave rebellion in in and around Charleston. Think of Charleston, the city, and outlying areas where the big plantations were. Charleston is, in many respects, considered to be the epicenter of slavery in America. There's some great books that have been written about Charleston's role in the history of slavery. The significance of Denmark Vesey is that in 1822, in summer of 1822, in the slave rebellion he plotted, was in the epicenter of slavery in the United States, area where there's a high concentration of slaves, a lot of wealth by whites who control, of course, control the wealth. And the, the uh, plotted rebellion, someone ratted on Denmark Vesey, and he and a number of his co-conspirators were captured and executed. Now, Denmark Vesey was a member of what we now think of as the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It had been founded about 1817. And so there's a, the history of Dylan, you know, Dylan Roof, the shooter, who murdered nine, I think, parishioners in a few years ago. This is the same church I'm talking about here that he was a member of. When the rebellion was put down, the governor of South Carolina enacted greater slave laws to prevent future uprisings. Also, there was an institution that arose because of that in order to defend Charleston in particular from future slave rebellions, and that institution is known as the Citadel. So there's a lot of history to that. As far as Baptists goes, South Carolina white Baptists pledged their support to the governor for putting down the rebellion. And so to bridge some gap between there up to the Civil War era, what's happening here is by, by the early 1820s in the South, as slavery has grown dramatically because of the cotton gin and the cotton economy, slave labor begins building churches in the South. The first Baptist churches of the South, many of the first Methodist churches as well, you go down the list, many of those would be, have been built by slave labor, perhaps directly, or indirectly through money generated by slave labor. Pastors were paid from monies that ultimately originated, for example, to a significant degree from, on the backs of enslaved black people. In other words, Baptists were moving up that socioeconomic ladder in some cases. They had a reason, if you will, a financial reason, a personal financial reason to support slavery in the past where they did not. And so this, the uh, Southern Baptists in the South, white Baptists in the South split from White Baptists of the North in, the 18, in 1845, Methodists split around the same time as well, Presbyterians were going through a split as well, all over slavery. Fast forward to the Civil War, many white Baptists in the South were ardently proponents of slavery. Many were white uh, slave owners, as had been most of those who formed the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. But it's a little more complex than from that as well, in that there are socioeconomic dynamics and not all bat white Baptists owned slaves. 
and so th there's there's some tensions in this world of of whites and white Baptists and slaves and economics, big churches and small churches, First Baptist churches and your rural, small rural country churches. So Baptists do provide a microcosm in the sense that they're numerous in the South by this point, second the Methodist. They also, by the way, before the, the uh, Civil War, and this is a surprise to many people today, churches by and large in the South were integrated. You had blacks and whites going to church together, but in reality, like Baptists, oftentimes did not have a choice about that because they went, they tended at the directive of their masters. They would typically sit up in the balcony if you go to a church built before 1865, roughly, and it has a balcony in it, most likely that's where the, the slave members would sit, separated from the white members down below. The uh, pastor, if you can imagine, the, the, if you can imagine this in your mind here, an assembly on a Sunday morning of enslaved black people and free white people, you've got a mixture of, of masters in there as well, slave owners that is, and the pastor, a white pastor preaching to his congregation, which has a lot of number of slave owners and perhaps some pretty wealthy slave owners and, and slaves in the balcony. And he's preaching from a, from a Bible, from a certain point of view that is in line, if you will, with the culture, that slave culture. At times, the pastor would, would speak to the slaves, making sure they understood from the Bible their place in life as slaves to obey their masters. And rarely would the pastor, if ever, challenge the institution of slavery. So Baptists are embedded in this culture. It's present on Sunday mornings. It's a brutal culture in, in terms of, of what white masters, of what white people, white slave owners did to their slaves. So uh, let, me, let me address for a second here. I've talked about white Baptists of the, of the South, but let it, let it also be noted that although many white Baptists of the North had become abolitionist by the time of the Civil War, not all were. Many were, but not all. And many Baptists and otherwise remained, well, remained racist. Many Northerners remained racist. And even many who were involved in the abolitionist movement, we would say today, still retain racist sentiments, if you will. So, the, so the, the dynamic going on here is between 1807, when slavery was outlawed by the Latin, New, New Jersey in the, in the North, which meant that it did not completely go away because there was still hereditary slavery in the sense of some um, current slaves would live in slavery for quite some time, whereas no new persons would be enslaved, is one way of saying that. Slavery was phased out. From that point, on America begin as a nation began more grappling more seriously with with slavery. There's a long involved story in how that played out, but the bottom line is white supremacy remained, and racism remained north and south. Abolitionism arose. Baptists were involved into a significant degree. White Baptists in the north were involved to enough of a degree that Southern Baptists got upset with them and broke away from them. It was enough of a degree. So slavery is confined to the South. Abolitionism, the abolitionist movement arose in part because of slavery in the abstract, but also in, in part because of the reality of slavery. And the reality of slavery was incredibly brutal in that 
you have you have a certain people class of people determined by their skin color white owning a certain class of people based on their skin color black and when a when a human being owned someone like that that human being literally controlled everything about that person's life everything including their sexuality and so the reality of slavery throughout this time into the civil war is that there were essentially no laws, or at the best, very few laws, preventing what white slave owners could do to their slaves. And they did whatever they wanted. There are, we have testimony from some Southern white women after the war who bitterly complaining about how they did, in their counties that there had been no attractive black women who had not been raped by, their, by, by white men by their owners, by brothers of their owners, and so forth and so on. This is going on. It's, it's, brutal, it's inhumane. There are um, white owners sometimes killed or murdered their slaves if, if they were too rebellious. Edward Baptist is a historian. He wrote a book about the economics of slavery and talks about how that, in many ways, modern capitalism in America arose during the slave era in which white slave owners used the system of slavery it mortgaged their slave they bought mortgaged slaves sold slaves had their debt invested in slaves and they took slaves bodies and and used slaves bodies in a sense to fine-tune them to be working machines is kind of how edward baptist talks about it and over the course of that time basically stole some three trillion dollars worth of labor from the from the bodies from the work of of enslaved peoples i think sometimes we have we've whitewashed you know the 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 idea of slavery we we have the myth of the the kind slave master and it's partly because we haven't wanted to tell the history and that's what historians like you keep doing that you keep uh, bothering us with the facts about you know the, what the system really was, and so I think it does raise you know some questions about what does it mean then as those that have come from this legacy that have inherited the wealth in our in our churches and our institutions as well as our families from the system, and and how do we how are we honest about our own past and our own history? What is that What does that mean to be you know particularly for those of us who grew up as Baptists of the South, or white Baptists of the South? How how do we tell that history? in a way that is that is accurate and responsible today. I think it begins with acknowledging there is a history there that has been ignored for too long. Brian, I grew up Southern Baptist. We didn't talk about this kind of stuff, as you can imagine. Someone at some point in my life, someone from outside the church, casually mentioned one day, oh, Southern Baptists, those were the people who wanted to keep their slaves. I had never heard that before. So for much of the history in the South, there's been silence about this, especially among Baptists of the South. So even talking about it, I, I think helps. Textbooks did not talk about it. If they did, they minimized it. They downplayed it. And it was from one perspective. So the perspective that, that most Americans have learned is from the perspective of the people that owned 
African Americans during slavery days, and that brutalized, and then after brutalized them, even murdered them, and then after the the uh, American Civil War, terrorized African Americans. Why is it that today we talk about Islamic terrorism, for example, 9/11, but we do not talk about the heritage of Christian terrorism as a part of our history? And the 6,000 plus lynchings that have been documented, for example, since slavery, and then slavery in and of itself. It's hard, it's hard to talk about how do, we, how do we frame this, how do we understand it, what, what do white, uh, those of us who are white who are in so many ways, you know, across the spectrum, we are the dominant race, we are the, we're advantaged, we're the advantaged race. I think to put this in perspective as to what could be done if we really wanted to is again historian Edward Baptist estimates that we stole three trillion dollars. Do you realize do, what that number sounds familiar to me because just a few months ago our government appropriated about three was about two three trillion dollars to um, to temporarily relieve those uh, some Americans from the economic ravages of the virus, the coronavirus. Now, how that took place from beginning to end, visualizing and appropriating that money, basically passing legislation, was about less than two weeks. That's it. It wasn't that hard. Now, if America was serious about bringing justice to, to injustice that has existed for a very long time, another $3 trillion could be helpful, targeted in the right way to try to help African-Americans who are disadvantaged in so many ways, other minorities as well, perhaps. But consider this. I sometimes tell people when I'm teaching about the Civil War or talk with people that after the Civil War, that white Southerners, well, historians talk about how white Southerners were willing, they realized they'd been defeated. Many were willing to accept that until Andrew Johnson came along the scene, succeeding Abraham Lincoln after, after Lincoln was assassinated. And did not want to really pun, did not really want to make, hold them responsible, and so white Southerners, at least leading white Southerners, made a decision. It, it wasn't exactly in these words, but this is how I would paraphrase it: We're not going to allow our former slaves in the generations thereafter to ever succeed in life, and so they established laws to make sure that didn't happen. The Ku Klux Klan was born, an avowedly white Christian organization, to suppress slaves. Public school systems in the South began in the post-Civil War, Brian, and that was it was blacks and whites together, backed by the military power might of the North and, and funding from the North and missionaries from the North to help educate black persons. But up until that time, by and large, there was no public school education for white people, for white children. In the South, it was a moment during Reconstruction when things could have could have been different if Reconstruction had ended differently. The White South resisted because they did not want Black persons to succeed, and we know the story since then. Now is the time, if perhaps now better than any other time in the past, this moment we're in is a time to have a serious conversation of doing what it takes to help. African Americans succeed because we have spent 400 years, basically, 
white folks have, the, the, the dominant race, if you will, not allowing that to truly happen. Yeah, another thing that you mentioned that I think is important is you talked about, of course, Baptists, as, as we know, split over this issue of slavery. Uh, and that, that happened in 1845, which is you know, 16 years before the Civil War. And so it's not just that we split first. I wonder, does it seem like that we helped the nation divide, right? That because Baptists had already divided and Methodists and Presbyterians, that the nation no longer had its religious bodies crossing these lines and holding the nation together. Is that fair to say? It is. That's a good observation. Some historians put it this way, that when the evangelical religious groups, to use that word back then, not now in the context of now, when Baptists and Methodists, especially Presbyterians too, began splitting, it signaled the inevitability of a civil war over slavery because religion was so interwoven into the fabric of, of American culture and life. And, and so there's a, there is an interconnection in, in the Civil War itself. There's an interconnection in leading up to the Civil War, religion and, and slavery. And one, one quick story that precedes this and kind of visualizes that perhaps many Baptists have heard the name John Leland, who was from Virginia. He, some have referred to him as the Billy Graham of his day, but he was also a foremost advocate of church-state separation. In 1790s, Virginia Baptists turned to him to craft a resolution about slavery, and he did, and they voted on it, and it, it was a, a statement against slavery. John Leland in the 1790s, and his other, some other writings as well, in addition to that one, was anti-slavery. And in some pretty, for that day and time, some pretty significant ways in, in, words, in the wording in which he used. By, by 1830, however, he has changed. He's, he went from being anti-slavery to being pro-slavery and on the side of slave owners as opposed to on the side of slaves. And that, that goes to a switch that took place that led to the split of Southern or Baptists in the South properly from Baptists in the North. That split took place. We have not, I mean, in today, you know, how many times have you heard someone say that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning? <laughs> there's, there's, that, there's, multi, there's, there's much to that. But nonetheless, <laughs> the bottom line is there is still a split in so many respects. And white churches in America remain so advantaged over black churches in America in so many respects. And, and a question for us as Baptists today is, I mean, we can think of this on a national scale, we can also think of it on a denominational scale, or even a local church scale or level. Yeah, and you know, and Baptists are the only ones of those religious bodies that never came back together across the North-South line. The Methodists and the Presbyterians, to some degree, they have reunited across the Northern, the, the former Northern, for the, former Southern splits have have come together. Not all of the Presbyterians or all the Methodists came back together, but, you know, the United Methodist Church is coming out of that that reunification. And, and Baptists, have, we have never, in any meaningful way, we've never seen a group of Baptists crossing the North-South split, the historical 1845 split. And, and so that seems to be even more an imperative for Baptists today to be grappling with this. Yes. 
I think it's fair to say that even in Southern Baptist life, there are more black congregations than, than in the past. And that's, you know, even, even in conservative Southern Baptist life. But, but even so, even with that, dealing with the underlying dimensions of our racist heritage and how did that even create chasms? If you, have, if you have an integrated church, and there are a number of integrated churches, there still remain oftentimes chasms between members in that church simply because of, of, of skin color, because of the black-white divide historically in America. How do, you know, this is a moment we live in right now, right? We're in right now. We are wrestling with racism, slavery, treason over slavery in the past. The church's involvement in it, Christianity's involvement in it. What needs to come out of this foment? What needs to come out of this moment? If we really believe, you know, if, if Baptists as Christians, if others as Christians truly believe that all humans are created in the image of God, is there a responsibility here somewhere to begin to finally seriously grapple and begin to seek and implement solutions to put work to stated beliefs? of human equality and to help and to help lift up those who were oppressed, who are downtrodden, who are simply underprivileged because of systemic racism built into our country's history over time. That that's going that's going to take some reallocation of some resources in some ways if it's really going to happen. Perhaps even in religious circles, much less, you know, federal government, state governments. That's a hard conversation. It's a, it's, I'm not even sure if it's possible. I'm not sure to what degree it's possible. How about that? To really take those steps. Who, who, where will this start and who, who will lead the way? You might already be kind of getting to this, but I kind of wanted to close on with this question. And, and there's the popular statement that I think is kind of a misquote from where it kind of came from initially, but those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Or I think it was George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so as a historian and one who has studied this era of Baptists in the Civil War, what is it that you see among Baptists in the, the ways that they're talking about slavery and the Bible and faith and culture? What is it that you see then that, that you're most concerned that we haven't learned from, that we're going to repeat or that we are repeating uh, as Baptists and as Christians today? Well, that, that, that's a good question. Um, I see from that point 150 plus years ago to the present day, what, is, what has struck me in recent years, not just right this moment, but in recent years as well from doing research in the documents of that, of that era in the past, is some of the same kind of sentiments and language that's being repeated again in some ways. And for example, white Christians of the South would many would were saying, well, we're not racist. It's simply God's will, essentially. I, I think to a to somewhat a different a different degree, but in some ways sim, similarity, there are there are a lot, there are many conversations that begin or many lines that begin with, I'm not racist, but but and so <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um 
so if, if if slave owners could could deny with a straight face their racism, how much easier is it for for us today to do that? Some of the same conversations, some of the same conversations for, uh, about people that don't want to work, for example, which is oftentimes a code for minorities or African Americans. Well, let's be honest in in days of slavery, the slave owners were in many ways, they were the welfare recipients. They weren't making their money. I mean, they're making their money off the backs of enslaved black people. They were stealing that money from them. So what, why, are we ha- why are we even having this conversation about pretending that, you know, uh, uh, dismissing lazy minorities or lazy, you know, black persons, if you will. That, that's, that has history backwards. And so I, 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 the the language you some of the language and imagery from that slavery and Civil War period of history, uh, late antebellum era and into the Civil War period, goes back to that. And for example, in the in this in the era of slavery and Civil War, it it was it was the white men rape, raping the the uh, black women. There was really no no there was no danger that slaves were going to rape rape white women but after the war the conver- that, that conversation from whites shifts around and, and who claim there's a danger from black men raping white women well it's a matter of control really is about controlling black people and so the conversation about issues of of control and who has money and who doesn't who has resources and who doesn't fear there was much talk of fear in the slavery days of white persons fearing black persons. In this case, the white supremacists and one slave owners fearing slave rebellions. Much of the discourse within the broad room of race today has to do with many white people afraid of black people still. So, Brian, I'm not sure that gets exactly where you're, what you're asking for. But I, I do see in how we use language and how we use how we use imagery and how they intersects with dynamics of of race in America. There are some consistent themes, in a sense, that are that are false narratives based on fear that motivate how people how we, how we think and how we act and how we look at the world. There's a, in other words, much of that. There's a lot of residue left from that worldview among among white people in slavery days, antebellum, and in, in through the Civil War. There's a lot of that residue that's still here that we have not gotten beyond yet. And if we think of the image, if we think of the language of worldview, our worldview needs to have a complete reformation or change from that worldview of the past in order for us to fully move beyond past into an, a new era of true equality, of appreciation of all persons, and of us asking, uh, you know, of ourselves, um, what can we do to help each other? What can we do to lift others up? Well, thank you, Bruce, for your time with us on the program, but also for the work that you have done on making sure that we know our history, 
that we don't tell ourselves, you know, some sanitized version of what has happened. It's important, as you've noted, that we have to know what we have done and we have to know that that passed because there's some work to be done today still from that continuing legacy. So I appreciate the fact that you and other historians have spent this time to help make sure that we we know what really happened. So thanks again, Bruce, for all that you're doing and for your time on the program today. Brian, I appreciate it. And if I may, let me just add one thing, which other people, some others are saying, which I think I, I should say as well. I think it's true from what we're hearing from many, from many of our African-American brothers and sisters that what we as whites need to do is stop and sit down and be quiet and listen. Because we need to hear. We've done enough talking, really, in so many ways. Those, those of us who are white are. We need to hear some of, the, some of the hard stuff that is true, that we've avoided, that we need to be able to absorb. Thank you, Brian. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Good Faith Media at goodfaithmedia.org. And you can learn more about Bruce Gorley at brucegorley.com. As always, you'll find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we'd greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I've got a special offer for you. Half off one year at tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.